0: I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She, a podcast where women who are leaders in their industries, companies, and most importantly their lives share inspiring stories about obstacles they've overcome. Forty years of working in a male-dominated industry has prepared me for the task of interviewing these courageous, successful women, and to share stories and insights of my own along the way. Listen up, future leaders, this
1: is Leading She to say that in order for women to get ahead, they have to behave like men. Women are bringing their own talents, their own perspective, their own, if it's a femininity or whatever it is that you're bringing to the table, that has value. Bringing something new and different shouldn't be perceived as a negative. It's just different.
0: Today on Leading She, my guest is Stephanie Crockett. Hey, Susan. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Okay, I'm going to introduce you and then we'll begin some questions about your company and then your experience and wisdom and leading she fashion. So looking forward to this. Me too. Stephanie Crockett is a C-suite executive and president and chief operating officer of Mower, an employee-owned marketing, advertising, and public relations agency with staff across the United States in New York City, Chicago, Atlanta, Boston, Charlotte, Cincinnati, and upstate New York cities of Buffalo, Rochester, Albany, and Syracuse. The agency is known for its brand-as-friend approach, a unique perspective that drives deeper relationships for brands using the simple but powerful attributes most important to creating and activating friendships, affection, relevance, and trust. Stephanie is responsible for growth, planning, culture, and leading all external activities of the agency. She also leads the client leadership team at Mower, as well as the agency's energy and sustainability practice. Drawing on her 25 years in marketing and communications, Stephanie has led multi-divisional complex lead generation and nurturing programs for key clients, including companies such as FedEx, Bausch & Loam, Carhartt, and Siemens. In addition to providing strategic client leadership, Stephanie has been responsible for securing more than 40 million in revenue at Mower. Stephanie is active in the advertising and central New York communities. She currently serves as a panel member of the Better Business Bureau National Advertising Review Board, as well as participates in three separate leadership forums at the American Association of Advertising Agencies, 4As. She's immediate past chair and on the board of United Way of Central New York. Stephanie is a member of the Platinum 6 Chapter of Women Presidents Organization, WPO. In May of 2023, next year, she'll be the 46th recipient of the highly coveted crystal ball award a recognition reserved for those who visibly impact the progress and prosperity of central new york demonstrate superior professionalism and foster excellence in the industry among other top qualities stephanie lives in syracuse new york with her husband and college professor matt reed so welcome again stephanie thank you suzanne yeah um this, uh, you've had an interesting and exciting career. Tell me tell me more about Mower. You've been with the company around 19 years. Uh, you have offices in a lot of cities throughout the U.S. And the company has about 150 employees. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Yeah, tell yeah. me more.
1: Well, Mower uh, has been around actually since 1968. So uh, 2023 will be our 55th anniversary. And Eric Mower, the founder, um you know, joined a, a small agency back in 68 and, and here we are 50, almost 55 years later, yeah. uh, you know, a, a significant uh, independent agency. Uh, and that's one of the things I think that is that makes Mower really special is that we always talk about being fiercely independent. Mm-hmm. And um, it really is kind of a, a key to our to our values. We answer to our employees and our clients and nobody else, which is really nice. yeah. and um, and the agency has, you know, so many incredible, client partners that we work with across a variety of industries. Uh, as you said, my specialty happens to be in the energy and sustainability space, uh, but also significant work in healthcare, care and financial services and travel and tourism. And a, a pretty good portion of our clients are actually uh, specifically in the B2B space, which I always think is one of the more uh, challenging, but more rewarding areas of marketing, you know, it's kind of easy to sell a pair of Nike sneakers, it's not that easy to sell an electrical switch, right? So the creativity is really tremendous in the B2B space. And and our team has a lot to be proud of there. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I would think that um, I I had a private company as well, uh, smaller, uh, obviously, than your company. And um, we used to say that we were pretty independent, too, we would Make a decision at breakfast and implement it by lunch. You know? <laughs> and uh, when you're with a big company, like if um, you know if you were with a big ad agency, you've got all yeah. these offices and all of this bureaucracy, it's less so. So I understand that fiercely independent part,
1: right? Yeah. And what and while we do have, yeah, 100%, Susan, you're you're spot on. I mean, I think that there are incredible agencies out there, but these big, big holding companies, it's a very different environment than what it is to work for a mid-sized shop like us. But to your point, we might not make decisions by lunchtime, but we probably could implement them by dinner. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, um, and I'd, I'd say uh, what's interesting, too, is, as you mentioned, we've got... You know, employees across cities across the United States, but we are one agency with one bottom line, mm-hmm. and so we all work extremely collaboratively together. There is not one client team that is represented only in one city, right? Mm-hmm. We're constantly working with our colleagues across the U.S., uh, and so it's really that that sort of single focused one agency mindset that um, that that is able to produce some pretty incredible results. Mm-hmm. And Eric
0: Mower, he started the company many years ago, and he, yeah. is he still active in the business?
1: He is yes he's our chairman and ceo mm-hmm. and uh Eric is is a force to be reckoned with for sure okay. <laughs> he uh is very active in our uh in our in our industry so participates in the 4As uh in in multiple areas sits on several boards as well as uh still doing some consulting with crisis clients uh we do a lot in the public relations space and reputation management and crisis work and and Eric is certainly uh an expert in that area so that's that's mm-hmm. an area where he still gets involved mm-hmm. uh, with clients day to day.
0: What are what are crisis clients?
1: Uh, oh goodness, it really it kind of runs the gamut. I would say uh, anything from uh, you know a misbehaving executive hmm. to a uh, a situation where you've got a, a tragedy that happens uh, on your. Uh, location or your property, if uh, something isn't handled handled well. So, um, unfortunately, there there doesn't seem to be any shortage of those uh, crises that are happening. But it could also be cybersecurity issues or things of that nature, where you need a public relations firm to help with the communication to both internal and external audiences. Try and manage. Mm-hmm. The media, you know, when we think about public relations, very often that job is to to get your name out in the media. And with crisis communication, it's to keep your name out of the media. Keep it out. Very yeah. often. <laughs>
0: right. So uh, it would be something that maybe in the morning things are going well in the company, but then like noon, something happens. Uh, someone within your client firm, maybe there's a death or, or somebody's maybe. not behaving and it's gotten out. and Right. That would seem to be pretty hard to manage, and then I'm sure you have practices by which you say, okay, here's what you do in this crisis situation. Here's how we manage the public relations part of this.
1: Absolutely, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. and again, unfortunately, there there isn't a shortage of those situations, and a big part about crisis communication, too, is just preparing for it, right? Mm -hmm. We certainly have learned as uh, as a as a world over the last couple of years, that there are things that will happen that we don't know how to prepare for. But when you're thinking about a cybersecurity issue or you're thinking about uh, a, a pandemic, a health situation, something that may happen. If you're uh, a restaurant chain and you have an issue or, or a retailer and you have an issue with recalling of produce, how are you managing that? And our team not only helps in the moment, but also the preparation for that. How can, what's their uh, sort of process their their modus operandi at the moment for who they need to involve, how they want to handle the media, what what are those things that we need to do in advance. And mm-hmm. so the team does kind of a balance of both, again, those mm-hmm. sort of uh, acute issues, as well as the preparation mm-hmm. uh, to help it, God forbid, something does happen in right. an organization. Any, any
0: uh, uh, recommendations to companies to anticipate this
1: or be prepared when it happens? Well, I think planning is a big piece of it, right? Mm-hmm. So, having a crisis communication plan in uh, lockdown is a, is a huge part. Uh, we even have one as an organization that we started, of course, a few decades ago. Where if there was, we have a lot of, as you mentioned, cities in upstate New York. There tend to be some weather issues there. If there's a significant ice storm, if of our offices are closed for some reason, just knowing the what's going to happen, right? So who's going to be where, who's going to communicate about down systems, a server crash, and X, Y, Z, really having all of that laid out. So I think it's a, a critical piece to just invest in a, in a communications plan uh, so that you're prepared as be- best as you can be. It's hard to predict somebody misbehaving or an unfortunate death or something like that. But uh, of course, those, are, those can be unpredictable. Mm-hmm. But when you have at least a plan of chain of command, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the things that are really important to Mm -hmm. have up front. Yeah. Cool. Yeah.
0: Um, the company is an ESOP, uh, ESOP, uh, employee stock option plan. Um, why did the company decide to go ESOP? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, it's, it's very recent. Actually, we became an ESOP in August yeah. of 2022. So we're only, we're only a few months into it. And, um, I'll, I'll tell you, it really speaks to the legacy of Eric Mower and to the type of man that he is an organization that we are as Eric looks to the future of the company and thinking as he, uh, you know, anticipates at some point down the road, a departure, uh, as he's, you know, already passed where most of us would be at retirement age. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, you know, as he thinks about that down the road, it was, how, how do we want to think about the future of this organization? Of course, uh, a company like ours uh, is very attractive to investors. We had have had a lot of offers throughout the years, including uh, just a couple of months before we decided to become an ESOP, a, a private equity firm, very attractive Uh, really interested in in mower becoming part of their portfolio. And it was at that moment that it was, okay, do we want to be part of something that we're not going to have that independence and control? Or do we want to continue this legacy of independence and what that means for us as a culture, what it means for our clients and the way that we serve them on our terms Mm -hmm. and and their terms, frankly, uh, and not answering to a holding company. And that was really important to Eric. And I think really important, again, for the legacy of what he's built and be able to continue operating this firm, uh, really based and the values that, that he has established that have become the foundation of who we are. And so becoming an ESOP is so exciting for us, so exciting for our employees. Sure. Uh, when we announced it to the group, it was an emotional day in all of the best ways. Uh, it's a great tool from a recruitment and a retention perspective. I mean, this is basically a, a built-in uh, retirement plan. Yeah, golden which handcuffs it, for people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really remarkable. Uh, you know, tough, I think, for some some younger employees in any ESOP to kind of feel, think about how that's relatable to them. Mm-hmm. But when you really, as employees, as, as employee owners, I should say, have a sense of what your role ultimately means to the company, to the, to your clients, to the business, to each other, to your sort of esteemed colleagues, it's um, it's exciting to feel like you really understand the impact that you can have every single day, mm-hmm. and what your individual role, no matter what department, uh, your longevity, etc., how that all really works together and mm-hmm. and really works harmoniously to to achieve success.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a positive
1: change. You and
0: I talked about this that yeah. you feel less pressure to uh then you in the esop structure than you did in your previous position
1: well i think um the how i would look at it susan is um you know i've always felt this company is extremely collaborative really really supportive and so i think the pressure piece is uh more so i'm in a different role now than i was before and and so in that particular situation it's um i that there's a there's not the pressure to have to worry about uh, again answering to somebody else. So the ESOP I think presents itself uh, with a really nice sort of again continuing that feeling of collaboration and community mm-hmm. uh, that that's really going to carry us forward. Yeah, tell me about uh, this brand as friend
0: approach. How does that create and activate friendships, affection, and relevance and trust? How, how, what is that about?
1: Well, you know, when you think about a relationship that uh, consumers have with brands, just think about the brands that that you are a consumer of. Right? Let's say you're a fan of—I'll just pick a couple of our clients. Let's say you're a fan of Carhartt right? Which, mm-hmm. is, uh, which is a pretty iconic brand. And when you think about the relationship that you have with that brand, there's really an element of, of any sort of other relationship that you have, right? And it's, it's those tenets of friendship and those tenets of those relationships that make that friendship last. And it's the same way that you think about a relationship with a brand. What we do know, and all these studies show, that like 95% of purchase decisions Come from the subconscious mind, hmm. right? And that emotion is the language of the subconscious, while logic is the motion is, is the emotion of the of the conscious mind. So it's really about finding that that sort of balance, right? Between the notion that emotion decides and logic validates, right? And so to make those emotional connections with brands, we think about that through that same lens that you're making emotional connections through the the people in your lives your 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 best friends your significant others your mm-hmm. family and it's those elements of again is where's the affection there needs to be a relevancy right a, a shared style common values and and of course trust honesty loyalty those things are really so critical so when we think about how we're creating brands that really connect and make those lasting authentic relationships with their customers it's through that lens of how are we driving that affection how are we making sure that we're that we're displaying and demonstrating relevancy to them how are we demonstrating that uh, we're loyal to them as customers or that they can trust us and how are we being honest and and open making connections with them so using that lens and and really where we've Sort of taken brand as friend as our sort of mantra as an organization is that we are making fierce friends, mm. and that's sort of a, a, a sort of turning up the dial from a 10 to a 12, if you will. Yeah, um, we refer to each other internally as fierce friends, all of our colleagues. Mm. Uh, we refer to our clients as our fierce friends, mm. many of them refer to us that way. You know, I get multiple emails a day, like, hey, my fierce friend, Stephanie, from my clients, from my colleagues, and it's, it's really become who we are. And it's about that, like, significant bond and authentic connection. Mm -hmm. Um, That really is, is kind of the sweet spot. And certainly when it comes to that kind of relationship that brands want with their customers, Mm -hmm. it's kind of the holy grail right there. Great.
0: Your company does some cool things around uh, diversity, uh, racial diversity, for example. Um, Talk about that. Talk about that initiative.
1: Well, I'd say, Susan, you know, like any organization, uh, we continue to uh, look for continuous improvement, right? We are constantly trying to be better, learn more. Uh, We've done a lot uh, as an organization as far as training and hiring, affirmative action. Uh, We are uh, really diligent about, about that as an organization. Of course, there's always Room for improvement. We continue again to learn and grow. How can we be the most welcoming, inclusive environment we can be? And part of the way that we're trying to also educate ourselves, educate our clients is through partnerships that we have with organizations like 100 Black Men, which is a phenomenal organization. Uh, we partnered with 100 Black Men of New York uh, and have done some really, really incredible campaigns, really talking about creating opportunities uh, for Black men in, uh, in work, in life. Uh, and so that's one of the ways in which we're trying to continue, again, Give something back to communities that give so much to us, but also uh, continuing again learn and grow and uh, and expose ourselves and expose our colleagues and our clients to some ways to that they can that they can help and be effective and mm-hmm. really kind of take this diversity and inclusive beyond just putting some statistics on a website and making sure that we're checking the boxes. Right, we want to go beyond box checking to really. Getting to the nitty gritty of understanding the value of diversity, which is and a diversity of thought, diversity of uh, the work that we do, making sure that not only is it about representation, but it's about knowing that bringing in voices from all different areas, different backgrounds, different places just make us all better together as people. Mm -hmm. It makes the work environment better. It makes our creative work better. uh, And so it's really a holistic approach to that across a variety of different. A different mm-hmm. uh, angles that we're, that we're looking at it yeah. through.
0: Well, let's dive into some leading she questions. Um, let me ask you this one. Uh, do men still have the power?
1: Uh, I think yes. In mm-hmm. many cases, I, I do think, and interesting because we were just talking about this with diversity. I say this all the time uh, for diversity and inclusion to happen. It's the, white men that need to make it happen because they hold the cards in many, many cases, right? Not to say that we don't all have responsibility and role uh, and effort and ambition there for sure, Uh, but we have to influence uh, the people that really are holding many of the cards. And I think if you just look, and I'm saying that answer statistically, right? More Mm -hmm. than anything else, the majority of CEOs of Fortune 100, 500,000 companies are still primarily significantly primarily men mm-hmm. um in ma- most cases look at our elected officials vast majority just in the United States alone vast majority are men right so when you're thinking about men being in positions of power I think that's the case yeah I do think however that women of course are making great strides and it's continues to improve but like anything it we've we've got a ways to go to get there yeah
0: I mean you say statistically but it sounds like it's your personal experience as well or professional experience that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I'd say our organization is fairly unique in that way. Uh, you know, well more than half of our employees are female, are uh, senior most leadership team out of a seven person team, it's three or female. Our, our vice president team is about 45% female. So we have fairly good, um, representation there from Mm -hmm. that perspective, um, which we're very proud of. And, um, and we can see the value of having more balance. Um, but for sure, when you're looking at our industry as a whole, um, most leadership of agencies are male. Most creative leadership is male. Um, so yeah, in our industry and, and in the other areas, clients that I work with and other areas of the world, for sure, yeah. still, still seeing the men in, in power for the most right. part.
0: And if I'm a white man, 50 years old, um, I guess I would ask the question, why would I want to give up any of my power?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I guess it's a fair question. It's interesting, you know. I think, uh yeah, and I'm sure they're, they're part of the reason why that change, why we haven't changed sooner, is is fear of giving up that power mm-hmm. for sure.
0: Yeah, I think it's yeah. that's still going on, but yeah, it is changing, and um you know, a lot of women, you know, are getting power, have power much more so, of course, than when I got into business in the '80s. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, still, still more work to do there for sure. Yeah, uh, for sure. The millennial generation. Um, how would you say uh, that things are different for women that are of the millennial generation than from say when you first started in your career, from your perspective, how mm. how things have changed, or maybe how they haven't changed too.
1: Well, it's interesting. I'd say I am I always refer to myself as sort of a bit of a non-traditional woman. I'm married with and, and chose not to have children. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an unusual path uh, when you think about it from that perspective. I always um, had been supported. I have incredibly supportive parents who were never no pressure. I want grandkids. They have one from <laughs> one of my sisters. But they were okay that they weren't going to get one from me and uh, and no, no issues there. And I'd say, you know, there's so much pressure for women, especially working moms to be perfect at everything. Mm. And I think there's just so much societal pressure to be the best, most successful professional, the best, most, you know, nurturing and, and successful mom, the best at everything. And I, I, I would hope that millennials are starting to see a shift in really feeling those societal pressures to fill a role that they may not want to fill. Maybe they want to be a mom and they don't want to work. Maybe they want to work Mm -hmm. and not be a mom. Maybe they want to find the balance between the two, but you know, I'm, I'm really hoping that that's where the shift is happening. And I think as I see just, again, statistically some trends that people are getting married later, they're having kids later if they do choose to have children. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that shift is happening a bit where I'm hoping that millennial women are feeling, that b- better ability to make their own choices based on what they want and not what they think they're supposed to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I'd say the other piece that I see, and it's probably even coming more from Gen Z than millennials is, um, just a recognition of the importance of balance in life. I mean, our industry is one that has had this like badge of honor because we work morning, noon and night and 70 hour weeks. Yeah. Students that are coming out of college now are like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would you want to do that? Like, what that's just silly. Where we're like, look at us, we're so cool. We're right. such badasses that we work so hard. And yeah. they're like, you guys are silly. That's just so that I think is also coming where they recognize like, that's probably not the best way to live and have. Um, have that. You're right. That's not what you want. Right.
0: It's good that they recognize it this early because it took me many years to realize that I don't have to work 70 hours a week. As a matter of fact, it's not good for me to do that. And uh, it's not, but we're, I'm in the baby boomer generation and that's what we did, you know? And yeah.
1: Yeah. Somebody just asked me the other day. How did, you know, how did you get to where you are? You've risen up in the company. And I said, I used to say to people, because my husband's is a professor. So I talked to his students a lot and he's a professor in advertising and PR. So those, I talked to the students a lot and I used to say I worked harder than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And which is not entirely true, but I felt like I was right. Or I felt like I should have say, I felt like I needed to. And that was my, mm-hmm. that was my solution, but that's not good advice. Right. Like, I don't want to give people that advice that like, just burn the minoid oil and do that. I mean, that was part of it. You know, I, was yeah. a lot of blood, sweat and tears there, but it, um, I think that that's, that's that changing perception mm-hmm. of what you want people to think and feel and, and to your point. Yeah. yeah. I've done that road where you're working 70 hours a week for months on end and you see the toll that it takes yeah. on you. And that's, that's not the way to live. I do think that women have to
0: work harder than men to achieve the same thing or more. Um, so, but there are ways to work smarter, but it is mm-hmm. p- important to balance, you know, make sure you eat right, get exercise in, don't Absolutely. drink too much, all of those, all those things. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think uh, the, the pressure to be perfect and do it all, you know, is, is, has gone on for many years, but I think the pressure is less. And I think mm-hmm. COVID really has been oh. a teacher of Absolutely. Um, many women that say, you know what, I can't stay home all day and be on zoom calls and try to take care of my kids that are home from school. I just can't, I just can't do it. I'm going to do something else. Yeah. So you see the startup of new companies a lot.
1: Yeah. I think the entrepreneurialism that's come is really fascinating and my husband's students. I mean, they. When you ask what they want to do and what they want to be, it's they want to be influencers, yeah. and it's not because they want to be the Kardashians. God help us, but it's really because they want to be able to do what they love and can uh, kind of make their own life and and use their skills and their talent. They are creators and mm-hmm. makers. It's really spectacular to see, and um, while it feels so unconventional to those of us that are that are are in generations where we were so like, we need a steady paycheck and it's a nine to five and, you know, at the very least. Yeah. And, and so I love to see that sort of freedom and independence in, in these um, younger people mm-hmm. that, that are bringing so many great, great things to the table.
0: Yeah. I see some of the best,
1: know, most innovative creators mm-hmm. that we have for
0: sure. Yeah. There's passion. There's, uh, they want to inspire others. They want to influence mm-hmm. others. And there's l- much less focus on, advancement and money i think yeah yeah generally speaking yeah yeah yeah
1: um
0: what would you say about politics what would you tell women that might be listening about politics what does it mean to you how did you handle politics what would you say
1: so this is always an interesting yeah. topic for me. I would always say that I would personally be a terrible politician because I don't have much of a filter <laughs> and I'm pretty, you pretty much know where you stand with me. Yeah. I have sort of a, a, like this black and white kind of view of the world. You're shady or you're not. That's what I right. like And so it's hard to sort of play that, play that part. I think, you know, in any company and any organization and any organization, uh, group of friends, uh, you know, anything that you interact with, there's a, there's a little bit of a game, right? You understand the politics. I think the most important thing is being able at the end of the day to say, like, do I feel good about what I did today? Am I, am I still really uh, being true to myself? I just said this the other day to somebody, you know, principles matter the most when they're inconvenient, you know, mm-hmm. like those are the times when you realize, There's politics to be played. That's not about, uh, hopefully it's not about sacrificing who you are. Right. And it's about understanding that, like, politics is a little bit about influence, as you were saying. Right. Like using what you can and your skills to be able to influence others is, I think, politics in the best way, mm-hmm. if it's influencing them for good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think uh, getting wrapped up in it is and, and having that lead you to uh, second guess whether or not you're really being, again, true to yourself and your values is where mm-hmm. you got to kind of avoid that. That game. I think so often women also believe that they have to behave like men in order to get ahead.
0: Right. And we all and remember,
1: right? yeah. No, I think, oh my goodness, I remember years ago being at a conference and it was a, a session for women in tech. And one of the women said, you know, here's what women have to do. If you want to communicate with your male counterparts and you want to get ahead and you want them to take you seriously, take out all your feeling words. Don't say, I think, I feel, I believe in your emails. You need to just cut to the chase and get to the point and do your thing and communicate like a man. And I was like, yeah, I don't agree with that. Like, Hmm. yes, there's something about being concise in communication, but I don't think that it's a fair Ass- assertion at all to say that in order for women to get ahead, they have to behave like men. Mm-hmm. Women are bringing their own talents, their own perspective, their own sort of a, a if it's a femininity or whatever it mm-hmm. is that you're bringing to the table that has value. Mm -hmm. that is bringing something new and different that shouldn't be perceived as a negative. It's just different. And sometimes that works better Mm -hmm. than what a a traditional male person might communicate Mm -hmm. and how they might, they might, um, you know, try and get a point across. So I think that that's part of the politics piece for me is just like, again, being true to yourself, not Mm -hmm. feeling like you need to become something different, question your values or become Mm more what you think is going to from a from a perspective of, you yeah. know, male female just kind of being focusing on the sort of cisgender roles, you know, that's that to me is something that seems um not the way to go.
0: There's some of the of what you said that you know that I agree with, which I don't I don't believe it, like it was in the 80s you got to be one of the guys to get along. You have to be yes. you know like guys, like men in order to be successful. You don't Um, The communication piece, though, is a little tricky. Um, There are times when people have been guests on here that have talked about how and you're talking about, you know, men having the power. Right. So Mm -hmm. if you want to get something done or persuade a group, you know, do you do you have to talk a little bit more strategic? Mm. Do you have to be more succinct in your communication? Do you have to sound less? less emotional.
1: I, I don't know. That one is interesting. It's interesting. And that might be the case with anybody that you're trying to influence, yeah. right? Male, female, mm-hmm. transgender, you know, uh, non-binary, whatever, whoever that individual is in order to kind of get your point across. I think concise might be the, might be the way to go, but that's really, you know, every individual. I also think, you know, not all men are the same, right. It's just like, not all women are the same, right. right? I'm a big proponent of like disc assessment, right. You've got people that are much more like influencing feelers. You've got some that are far more focused on like spreadsheets and facts Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. analytics, right. That's how you communicate with people. I don't Mm -hmm. really worry about the gender when I'm thinking through that lens. I'm just thinking about individuals coming from different perspectives and how do I relate to them, right? goes back to that relationship building and relevance we were talking Mm -hmm. about. How do I, you know, kind of talk at their level and it doesn't really matter what their gender is at that point.
0: I remember taking the disc so many times and every time I'm (laughs) a high D, that's all I remember is
1: that I'm a high high D and I think the high S, like
0: D and then S is the second one, but the other ones are, I think are more analytical. I'm more, I think it's dominance, right? D is dominance.
1: D is definitely more dominant. (laughs) You're probably high D, high I, I would guess. S and C are are a little bit more More passive. It'd be very difficult to see D and
0: S together. Maybe it's high D high D and high I, because I think yeah. the graph kind of starts out high and then it goes down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, Let's let's talk about women helping women. Um, there mm-hmm. are different uh, guests I've had on here that have said, gosh, women have been big proponent of my career. We help each other. You're part of a WPO, Women's President Organization. Yeah. Um, I've had experiences where women that I thought would be helping me haven't always helped me and I <laughs> have been surprised. And so we need to, you know, we need to help each other. We need to lift as we climb, as, as we say. And, uh, you know, what would you say there about women helping women? Have you had two different experiences there along those lines?
1: Yeah, I think like anybody, I'm sure I, I definitely have. I grew I grew up in a family with, you know, three girls and and like world's most incredible strong mother. So it's uh I grew up in a in a household of very supportive, fierce women. And my sisters are are still that for me today. And um, and mm. so I think I don't know if it's because of that. I've always been somebody who looks at others and thinks like, how can we help each other? Um, and but sure, I, I've definitely had instances in my career where people have tried to uh, uh, bet a little competitive or tried to sort of cut me down because I don't know if it was a female thing or just a competitive thing, but other other women. Hmm. Um, I, I'm all for. My goodness, to your point, we have to lift each other up as we're climbing, right? Like that is such a big piece. Um, WPO is a great organization for that reason. I don't think I've ever been in a room with more like inspiration and power than that national conference with Mm -hmm. 800 like lady bosses that are just celebrating each other and all of their accomplishments. And that, and there isn't a moment of like, Oh God, I'm so jealous of that person because of their success versus mine. It's like those, everybody is just there to say, how can we help each other learn, teach? It's the whole sort of platform of the organization mm-hmm. is about mentoring each other in a way. And uh, I think it's so critical uh, within organizations. I think it's critical within communities to find ways to do that and to create space, for women networking to create space uh, for women who might not otherwise have those networks available to them. Um, and, you know, through, mm-hmm. you know, schools all the way up to different professional organizations. I think it's mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a huge part of where, why, where I've gotten today. Uh, and. I, would and think, I hope,
0: Yeah. With all the women that you have in your company and you're to, you're one of the top people in the company uh, that you have yeah. a chance to mentor these women.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's so, it's so important to us, uh, as a, as an organization. And I wouldn't say that we put a special focus on women, um, mentoring women. I think it just happens naturally, uh, because we have so many women in leadership that, um, we really look out for each other. And, um, and it's mm. such a great environment that we don't really feel like there's any sort of gender kind of divide within the company. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm sure, uh, and that's something that will be a, a big part of how we continue in the future, yeah, for sure. It's refreshing.
0: Uh, I found in my career that um, I find out about these men's groups, uh, informal, kind of like little, okay, yeah, we all get together and we meet once a month and, and, uh, or we have the standing golf appointment or after work get togethers or hunting mm-hmm. and, this is a way for men who do business together to make friends and bond with each other. And sometimes, often, women aren't included in there. And I think sometimes they they just, we didn't even think about inviting a woman in here. It's <laughs> just like, you know. Sure. Uh, so how do women compete with this? Or do they need to compete with this? And uh, what would you say about developing relationships with men uh, and how men develop relationships with each other in in these groups and how it affects us
1: sure well I think that there's a couple of ways to look at it I would say you know there's no reason why there can't be and shouldn't be and and there definitely are women's groups right mm-hmm. that are also trying you know doing a ton of that networking and socializing and and uh doing their own dinners and golf and all of the fun things that, uh, that the men are doing. I think for women and men to build those relationships together, um, it just might need to be a little bit more deliberate. Right. And, um, that you're looking at opportunities through shared, um, interests could Mm be on a golf course, could be, uh, at a, at a social club where you enjoy good food or, Um, some of those things. And I think, um, that there's probably, again, more of an opportunity to be a little bit more deliberate about it. I think, I think being deliberate about things is, is kind of feels uncomfortable for some like, okay, I have to go out and seek out to specifically do this as opposed to just sort of expecting it's going to happen naturally. Hmm. But nothing that happens really just, you know, very often (laughs) it's because somebody's, somebody's trying to make it happen. Right. It's initiative
0: like you and me, like, just like, Hey, we got to do this. We're going to do this, you know,
1: exactly a hundred percent. And so I think it's just finding the things like, I don't golf, I have no interest in golfing. I, (laughs) I, I I already have enough things in my life that are like infuriating and try my patience. I don't (laughs) think taking on a sport that I know I'm not going to be good at is a good idea to add to the mix. Right. so,
0: yeah,
1: I, think, I understand.
0: I've been playing um, for 30 years and I yeah. still go out and I think I'm going to be better this season. <laughs> <So. clears
1: throat> but it's finding those other things that you connect on. I'm a big sports fan. I do a lot of that connecting at games and mm-hmm. um, those kind of things. So yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. It can be done. Um, and, um, yeah, like you say, men have the power and how do you you know, can you get into those groups? And sometimes it's not really it's not really something that we want to do. I'm not going to go hunting with with guys. Oh yeah,
1: you no, know? that is <laughs> definitely not going to happen for Although me. Although I've either. done it,
0: I, I've done it. I went. I was invited yeah. by a client to go dove hunting, and okay, oh,
1: ca- <laughs> that's horrifying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it kind of was horrifying. Oh uh, my goodness! Because I was a pretty good shot, and so oh, uh, I shot oh. a few dove and. Um, how they, you know, how they, uh, made sure that dove was, was gone. Uh, and then we all ate dove for dinner. It, it just, you know, but you know, Hey, I was in there, I had my gun and I was shooting and I was bonding. Wow. You know, <laughs> uh,
1: that's, that is fascinating. I, you know, I, uh, I didn't know that that was a thing. I'm yeah. a, I'm a pretty inventive eater dove is definitely not on the list of anything <laughs> I've ever had or seen before, but tastes like okay. chicken, by the way. <laughs> doesn't
0: everything
1: <laughs> yes. really yeah um tell us
0: uh, as we wrap up a couple of couple more leading she type questions um what would you tell women about you know persistence and endurance i think one of the things that all of my guests have to a woman is this ability to be resilient to mm. no matter what's going on getting up you know and and just no matter what's going on, they just do it. They get it done. And um, what would you say about that? What would you tell young women that are advancing in their careers?
1: Well, I think that that the uh, what happens with persistence and determination is because you've got a you've got a reason why, right? You've mm-hmm. got a purpose that you're trying to fulfill, and that is what gets you out of bed every morning and that is what gets you to keep pushing ahead in the face of adversity or when you just don't feel like getting out of bed that day or mm-hmm. whatever is going on in life. It's that really kind of understanding, like what is it that you're hoping, what impact do you want to make in the world, right? Like what are you hoping to accomplish? Where, what's driving you every day? And that's probably not making more money for your company, right? Mm-hmm. That's probably something bigger than that. Mm -hmm. Um, I just read something, uh, yesterday that was talking about the difference between passion and purpose and purpose is this external thing that you're really trying to get to, but it's the passion that allows you to get there. Right. Mm. And so I think really getting, understanding that purpose is what drives that persistence, right? If you felt like you were just like a cog in a wheel and you were only kind of doing a little thing every day, that's not going to get you to, to do that. And so I think really understand who you are and what your values are and your vision and and your purpose. Mm-hmm.
0: I like that, um, and I always think passion and purpose sort of go along together, for sure. <clears throat> but mm. to think of them as being different, you know what's the what's the passion? You know, of this you know, of, of my podcast is really delivering a message, being the conduit between you giving the message and then my listeners. Uh, and then purpose is just you know that that sort of that drive, that ambition to make it happen. I guess. Yeah. What would you say your biggest, uh, here. here's where you really get vulnerable if you say it like it mm-hmm. is. How? What is your biggest failure, do you think, in your career? Oh,
1: you have a goodness. story? Um, oh, there's so many. <laughs> um. <laughs> All of us have them. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me think about it for a second. I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I should have been prepared for it, but <laughs> I... Um, it's interesting, I would say that the probably the biggest failure that I had, it's probably not a specific thing, as much as it's sort of a general thing is earlier on in my career, I should have taken more risk. Mm. Um, you know, I made decisions to stay in uh, the town that I grew up in and I went to college only about an hour and a half away. If I were to do it over again, I would have I would have taken more risk. Mm. I would have explored more. I would have um, really probably opened myself up to learning more of the world uh, earlier on. Uh, I mean, I had no money, and so that was a bit of a deterrent at that (laughs) moment to be able to travel around the world or do whatever. But I think I would have definitely taken, again, taken more risk and opened myself up to more. Because when I think about what I'm able to get now when I'm traveling and meeting people and you know, not that I'm traveling around the world at this point. Um, I I sure I sure hope to, and I learned so much. And I wish that I had, um, yeah, just taken more risks, mm-hmm. uh, trusted myself a yeah. little more.
0: Yeah, I, a lot of my uh, a lot of my guests on the podcast say that. You know, that mm-hmm. take more risks, take more risk, assume that yeah. you have a backup plan. Just assume that. Um, you know, things are, things are gonna, if they, even if they don't go well. And uh, I agree with that. I wish I had done the same thing, but I, you know, 20 years old, I was 21. I was scared. I, you know, I, I oh, sure. you know, we weren't sure about how the world worked back then. And mm-hmm. I kind <laughs> frankly still don't know, but I certainly <laughs> I'm just was. Say,
1: I'm still a little scared. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, we're figuring
0: it out here. Right, uh, but, right. but yeah, I would agree with that. And um, yeah. So the message is, you know, Try it. You know, I kind of wish I'd gotten out of college and moved to Chicago and just, you know, like, mm. OK, let's let's uh, just start over in a new city. You know, that's not what happened. But, um, you know, I I think it's really bold to do that and it'll work out. You can always come back home. Right.
1: I 100 <laughs> percent agree. And that's where I would have gone to. So, yeah. Yeah. Neat. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, uh, last question. You talked about your biggest failure. What are your what do you think your biggest keys to your success have been?
1: Well, I think that, you know, for, from that perspective, I, as I mentioned earlier, I've had so many incredible people that have uh, been so supportive along the way. I think thinking that you have to do it all alone mm-hmm. is not the way to proceed, right? Like, I wouldn't have gotten where I've gotten without the incredible mentorship that I had throughout my career at mower, I probably wouldn't be in the role that I'm in today without the encouragement of my husband mm-hmm. and saying yeah. to me, I don't know why you're kind of aiming low. We need to aim high. Yeah. And so I think uh, really looking and listening to the people around you is a big, is a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, not being afraid to ask for help. I mean, one of yeah. the biggest pieces of pieces of advice that I got early in my career was you know, you don't know everything, shut up and listen. doesn't matter how smart you are, <laughs> you know, like you're constantly learning and listening and, and that's, that's a huge piece of it. Yeah. That is a big one. I would
0: agree with that is especially early in your career is just, yeah. uh, don't think about what you're going to be saying as much as really taking it in be a sponge 100%. early on. And, uh, listen to what's being said, emulate people that you really like their style. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to, mm-hmm. you're going to see examples of people that aren't, aren't good at what they do, or you right. don't want to emulate their style, right? You probably built your career on that. I did the same thing. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Stephanie, thanks for joining me today. It's been great to get to know you and I've got a lot of respect for your career and, you know, just congratulations.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Susan. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.